There are a million cliches out there about how nothing comes for free. No free lunch, no free rides. We live in a capitalist society. And what that means is that everything from the everyday to the life-altering has a cost. And that includes getting shot. Staggering. 17 people were killed, making this one of the deadliest mass shootings in another American history. Another very sad day in America, and another senseless shooting. This time the legislature voted not to take up a bill banning assault weapons. A crushing blow to students who were there. One week after the deadly school shooting in Florida, President Trump invited Americans touched by gun violence. About gun violence in this country. Gun violence in America. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And in the aftermath of the Parkland shooting and the broader debate about guns and their place in American society, we are going to start with a number. And that's $3 billion, as in $3 billion. That's how much gun-related injuries cost the U.S. hospital system each year. The number comes from a peer-reviewed study in the journal Health Affairs. Most injuries happen during an assault and to people between 15 and 29, especially young men. Emma Court reported on the data, and she spoke to the authors. She covers healthcare for Market Watch. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. You cover healthcare, and you reported extensively on this study that sort of tallied up the healthcare costs of gun violence in the U.S. What are the headlines here? So the big kind of takeaway, so this study focused um, primarily on hospital costs. So it looked at kind of initial costs when you go to the hospital after one of these shootings. So it looked at inpatient costs, which are the cost of hospitalization, and also kind of the cost of just the initial emergency room. And it found about $5,000 on average for those initial emergency room costs, and then about $96,000 on average for hospitalization. The almost $100,000 sort of on average cost figure, do we know uh, how that dollar amount breaks down? So we know that about 5000 of that is for emergency room costs and then about $96,000. And this is on average is for inpatient, um, so kind of the hospitalization. And this is all just sort of the initial hospital visit. And so an important thing to keep in mind here is like insurance coverage varies sort of extremely widely. Yeah, yeah. So And especially with some of these high profile shootings, you do have a lot of kind of support services set up. There are big funds set up. Um, There may be kind of allowances made by the hospital to forgive some of this. So there's kind of a wide uh, range of what happens to these bills, but this just looked at initial costs. When we think about the aftermath of living after a shooting, and we are not just talking about these high-profile mass shootings. We're talking about, um, I hate to say this, but sort of everyday gunshot wounds. Who foots the bill for that aftercare? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. The study definitely tried to look at how much it cost, but it's it's sort of difficult to take a comprehensive look at how much the um, victim in question pays because there is such kind of a wide range of insurance coverage and the situations may be very different. In some cases, the hospitals forgive um, some of those costs. In some cases, the hospitals, you know, bill the insurers, but don't kind of collect the copayment and deductible costs. Mm. Um, But then you have other situations where, you know, a a victim may have the best insurance and it still doesn't cover some of these longer term costs that are associated um, with having a traumatic experience like this. So it doesn't look at mental health care costs. It doesn't look at rehabilitation costs or speech therapy or, you know, um, not being able to prepare meals, you know, in the aftermath of this and having to have someone, you know, buy a lot of takeout or, have someone in your home help take care of you, things like that. 
we talk a lot on the show about insurance and who is insured and who isn't. Um, if someone is uninsured, um, who ends up footing that bill? Is it a hospital who eats it? Does the person not get care? What happens? It's probably a wide range of things. But I mean, the important thing here actually is that the study looked at um, how much the hospital charged patients. So it didn't look at how much the insurer actually paid. So and we know that insurers negotiate kind of more favorable rates. They have a lot of negotiating power, but uninsured people don't really have that advantage. And so it's important to realize that someone who is uninsured in this situation is probably bearing the, the largest brunt of wow. the cost. This study is also happening sort of with the backdrop of a lot of changes to the healthcare system. How does that figure into this calculus? Yeah, so I think that's a great point. The thing about um, the way that health insurance is changing, a lot of people have this perception that if you have good health insurance, it's all kind of taken care of at a certain point. And that's changing a lot um, because of the rising cost of health care. Um, a lot of employers have been shifting that burden onto their employees in a lot of different ways, such as through high deductible health plans, where you might be on the hook for several thousand dollars of out-of-pocket costs before your health insurer picks up the tab or through kind of different kinds of co-payment situations. So there's a lot of kind of variability in coverage now that I, I don't, people don't always ex- know about if they're not experiencing it. And probably but, aren't thinking about in a traumatic situation. Right. When you're choosing that high deductible plan because it's cheaper through your employer, you're not thinking about, oh, man, what if I'm in a shooting? And you're not planning for it in your financial planning. Since 1996, there has not really been federal funding for research into uh, gun violence and the effects of guns. When you spoke to the researchers who did this study, uh, did they say whether or not that has affected their work and the ability to get data? Right. That's a great question. I actually asked the researchers, like, there's this restriction on kind of this kind of research. How did you do this? And they said, we didn't use funding. We just mm. used our re- university's resources. But I think a really important thing is that part of the reason I suspect that this research came about is one of the researchers had been a victim of gun violence as a teenager. And so he really had that kind of impetus to study it and find a way to conduct this research. But it's probably very difficult to conduct a study like this without funding and to get convince your colleagues to get on board and all of that. You know, this does shape the way that we see a lot of this stuff, because even if research like this can be done without funding, it's maybe not the easiest possible option. Emma Court from MarketWatch, thank you so much. Thanks. Coming up on tax filing season. Now, most of the changes from the new law will go into effect next year, but there are some things you ought to think about right now. So, investment advisor and accountant Jonathan Gerber has five things you need to know about the new law. Number one, what happens to most people's income tax rates? For most Americans, their effective tax rate went down, but for those of us living in states with high tax rates, our rates may have gone up. This is because we previously had a state income tax deduction we could deduct our state income taxes from our federal income taxes. But that's now gone. At the end of the day, you have to sit down and do the math to see if your taxes will be higher or lower under the new law. Okay, so number two, how's this going to play out for small businesses? This is probably the most misunderstood part of the new law. Small business owners whose business is organized as a C-corporation, partnership, or a sole proprietorship 
who will be able to deduct 20% of the flow-through income from that business on their personal income tax returns. The purpose behind this is to put these small businesses in line with the new lower corporate tax rates for larger corporations. However, the deduction is capped at $57,000. Again, it's complicated. Number three, estate taxes. Some pretty big changes there, huh? Yes. Taxpayers can now leave as much as $11.2 million per person or $22.4 million per couple completely free of estate tax upon death. Because of this much higher tax limit we have today, many people are doing what's called upstream gifting, where they're actually transferring their investments to the older generation, so that when that older generation dies, the younger generation can re-inherit the amount free of estate tax. This is basically a mechanism that allows taxpayers to lower the amount of their investment subject to capital gains and to take advantage of the temporarily high $22.4 million per couple exclusion of estate tax. We're seeing all kinds of creative plans being discussed. Number four, does it still make sense to itemize deductions? It still depends on what your personal expenses are. The standard deduction has gone up a lot under the new law, nearly doubling. You now get an automatic $12,000 standard deduction if you're single and $24,000 if you're a couple. And the deduction for state and local taxes is now limited to $10,000. So, assuming you pay at least that much in state and local taxes, you'd be looking for another $14,000 in deductions to exceed the $24,000 threshold for a couple. Now, with a much higher standard deduction, a lot of people who should have itemized in the past are not going to be itemizing under the new law. And number five, what about writing off donations to charity? Since most Americans will no longer benefit from itemizing their deductions, the tax benefit from charitable giving for those Americans will essentially go away. There are, however, a few ways around this. The first is for those who are over 70 and a half years old and have IRA accounts. They can use their required minimum distributions and direct it to charity instead of their own checking accounts. In this way, the distribution doesn't register as income and avoids income taxes altogether. The second approach applies at any age, and that is to lump several years' worth of charitable donations into a single year and put this money into a donor-advised fund. This allows the taxpayer to take the deduction for the full amount in the year of the donation, getting them to a level where they are itemizing for just that one year and then to dole out the funds from the donor-advised fund over the subsequent three or four years to organizations they do wish to support when they're not itemizing. That was accountant Jonathan Gerber with five things you need to know about the new tax law. Is there something you want to know five things about? Tell us what subject to tackle. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org. months since Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico. Full power still has not been restored, and on Thursday, the island's governor announced that researchers from George Washington University will recount the number of people who died because of the storm. 
The official death toll is 62, but media and amateur counts have put it at more than 1,000 people. Meanwhile, the governor and several members of his administration have been in New York and Washington trying to court investment in the island and its economic recovery. I recently sat down with Manuel Leboy, secretary of Puerto Rico's Department of Economic Development and Commerce, and I asked him about the pitch he's making to investors, given both the storm and the island's debt crisis. When it comes down to the debt restructuring, uh, the truth of the matter is that last year we filed for uh, Title III under PROMESA. And we were concerned the initially. The law that essentially allows you to, exactly. to declare bankruptcy. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, some people thought that that was going to create sort of uncertainty. But on the contrary, the fact that now we have an orderly process, that prov- you know, in itself provides certainty. The, actually, the fiscal plan includes what we call structural reforms. Uh, those are going to be the basis for our future growth. No matter whether we uh, believe that tourism has to be forefront or manufacturing or technology or whatever, it is essential to have a strong foundation. Do structural reforms include pension cuts? Mm, Well, that is a very uh, sensitive matter, right? Um, The PROMESA law states that we need to achieve a sustainable, adequate pension plan. And that is part of the discussion that we need to have. We need to make sure that we can honor previous commitments, and at the same time, we need to be fiscally responsible. And that is going to require, you know, certain negotiations and and, and certain things. Uh, I cannot jump into a conclusion that it will be essentially a cut, but changes need to be made. Now, the nature of those changes are part of the things that we need to figure, and and we are in the process of doing that. Certain things were included in the fiscal plan, but it is an ongoing process, uh, and we need to make sure that it's a fair fair system that is fair for previous uh, uh, people uh, and, of course, you know, upcoming, uh, uh, you know, governmental uh, employees that need to receive a fair fair treatment. So we need to balance all this interest. There are some things in this plan, and I want to kind of walk through them because they're key tax issues. For example, 100% exemption from income taxes on all dividends, interest, and capital gains for bona fide residents on income made in Puerto Rico. It sounds to me like looking at some of these changes, you all are trying to trying to create um, a tax haven or tax breaks for people to come to the island. Is that right? I understand uh, why some people might think that, but it's not really the, the reality of it. No? Um, a tax haven, by definition, is that you know you are avoiding taxes, yeah. and uh, by by the virtue of that, it doesn't translate into economic activity or economic development or the creation of jobs or so forth. In the case of Puerto Rico, we are using certain tools like tax incentives or tax credits or other economic incentives to really actually incentivize, because that's precisely, you know, the whole point, incentivize a number of activities that are supplementary to the decision of going to Puerto Rico based on other other factors, our other core competencies and, and, and assets that we, that we have in the island. So I'll give you an example. In the case of this uh, Act 22, which is the one that offers a 0% for all passive income and distributions, um, it is based on the fact that it's completely new money. So an individual will, you know, with a high net worth, mm-hmm. 
probably will not consider Puerto Rico to become a residence for, for many reasons, you know. Uh, and so it is like you come to Puerto Rico, otherwise you will not have made that decision, uh, and you will need to invest because in order to receive that um, benefit, you need to invest. You know, you and I are talking about these big picture plans for sort of revitalization and an economic overhaul. And yet I wonder, how do you do that when basic things like electricity are still so unreliable? Yeah, that's another great observation. Um, So I don't want to sound disrespectful, but, you know, four or five months after the hurricane to be at 80 percent power is really remarkable. It was zero. It was nothing. There's another 20% of the population that doesn't have power, and we're doing everything that we can to expedite the process. And for me, it is unacceptable that people, some people don't have power. When you are pitching to private investors, are, are you just talking to American private investors or, or international investors as well? We're talking to everybody, basically. Certainly U.S. investors, because we're part of the U.S., is our natural pitch. Uh, but on the, you know, on the other hand, uh, as any other state or territory does, we want to diversify the source of funding uh, from private investors. Right now, I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, we have companies from Germany in the aerospace industry, like Lufthansa. We have three, four, maybe five companies, huge companies in the island, in the manufacturing sector, medical devices and pharmaceutical. We have uh, investors from Mexico. You know, they, they are in the telecommunications uh, sector. They are in the pharmaceutical sector. They are in the concrete business. Uh, we have investments from Colombia. We have investments from Spain. I mean, we, we are highly kind of diversified. But, of course, our main source uh, of funding has always been the U.S. mainland-based investors. But the pitch right now uh, is basically um, to uh, U.S. investors, because um, we want to leverage, you know, what's happening on the federal front with the private sector front. Manuel Boy, Secretary of the Department of Economic Development and Commerce, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. You can check out our special from Puerto Rico on our website. Go to marketplace.org. And this week, we are continuing a special look at ethics in the Trump administration. It's called Ethics Be Damned. Our investigative team at APM Reports found that more than half of the president's 20-person cabinet has engaged in questionable or unethical conduct. Indeed, the acting head of the Office of Government Ethics, David Apol, told my colleague Tom Shack of APM Reports, quote, these are perilous times. But how did we get here? And where did our ethics rules come from in the first place? For that... Tom is going to take us back in time to the 1950s. Hi, Tom. Hey there. How's it going? We're going to go back to uh, 1958 and Dwight Eisenhower's administration. And when you think of Ike, Lizzie, what do you think of? I mean, I would go with the be like Ike buttons, the sort of, you know, that that guy. It's the squeaky clean image. For president, you like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike. For president, Right, a lot of people considered Ike to be squeaky clean, but... There were some ethics problems that were in his administration, and there were worries that he was hiring too many business executives. Now, what makes this interesting is that Eisenhower and Republicans campaigned on cleaning up government after scandals plagued Harry Truman's administration. But 
Eisenhower then got caught up with his own major scandal in 1958. One of the capital's hottest and touchiest political controversies is set off... At that time, Ike's chief of staff, Sherman Adams, was forced to resign. Sherman Adams improperly received gifts from Boston industrialist Bernard Goldfried. Basically, he accepted gifts from a New England textile magnate an oriental rug and a coat. At his next press conference, Ike anticipated reporters' questions with a prepared statement. A gift is not necessarily a bribe. One is evil, the other is a tangible expression of friendship. And it even got its own name, the Vicuña Coat Scandal. Vicuña, I have some vague memory of this from history textbooks. Catch me up. Vicuña is a pricey wool produced by an extremely rare South American animal, and it's pretty expensive stuff here. Some Vicuña scarves cost more than $1,000. So this scandal ended up costing Adams his job, mostly because Eisenhower's fellow Republicans worried that the scandal could cost them the 1958 elections. Uh, Why are we talking about this scandal now in 2018? This scandal helped set in motion the process that basically is the system for ethics today. John F. Kennedy saw the problems in the Eisenhower administration and the Truman administration, and he wanted to put tougher standards in place. They wanted to prevent that from happening to them. Uh, very simple. That's Robert Roberts, a political science professor at James Madison University, and he's written several books on ethics issues involving the White House. When the Kennedy people came in, they wanted to make sure that they would not have to deal with these types of scandals. We see in Trump administration today having to deal with a special counsel. They didn't want to have to deal with scandals. You, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear. I, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear. Okay, so what did JFK and, and then his successor, Lyndon Johnson, end up doing? So here's what they did. They updated the conflict of interest laws to say federal workers could not use public office for private gain. That seems simple, but it wasn't on the books at that point top-level appointees, they were also required to start filing confidential financial disclosure forms so the administration would know if there were any conflicts of interest out there, if somebody was holding uh, interests in a company or anything like that. But then in our timeline, we get to the 1970s, and one of the most important events when we are talking about government and ethics— Watergate and the Nixon administration. In a televised farewell last night, President Nixon acknowledged that because of the Watergate affair, he no longer has a strong enough base in Congress to continue with any effectiveness. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Right, and then that that prompts basically another round of ethics changes. Jimmy Carter campaigned in 1976 as an outsider, and he was saying, I'm going to clean up Washington. Across our land, a new beginning is underway, led by a man whose roots are founded in the American tradition. And he and Congress pushed through what is uh, known as the 1978 Ethics in Government Act. And that's the law that we mostly follow today. And it requires every government employee to file financial disclosure statements. It created the Office of Government Ethics. But it was also really controversial. Almost right from the start, Ronald Reagan's administration, who was elected in 1980, came in in 1981. They really hated it. This is a man whose time has come. A strong leader with a proven record. Reagan was also elected as sort of a government outsider, campaigned against too much central government control. 
Why was his administration so worried about financial disclosure forms? But they had to fill a cabinet, right? And so they really Mm. struggled to find outsiders to join them. And one of the problems that the Reagan administration had is that they were going out and they were trying to ask business leaders, come into our cabinet because we want to do things a little bit differently here. But those business leaders, they didn't want to disclose their finances and they basically didn't take government jobs. So this is an argument that people still make today, that talented people won't serve in government because of the disclosure requirements. But we talked about this last week. You know, the Trump administration has the wealthiest cabinet in history and the disclosure forms that we have um, and the system that we have, you know, can they really handle all of these complicated holdings? Sure. And let's take the case of uh, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. He's a wealthy businessman. He owns a bunch of ships and shipping companies. He filled out his disclosure form, and it clearly showed he owned ships through two companies. But when we looked further and we really dug in, we learned that he owns 36 more ships than previously disclosed. Most of those ships that he owns move oil and gas. And this is a big issue because Ross, as Commerce Secretary, negotiates trade deals, which could mean more business for his ships if he negotiates things related to oil and gas. We also learned that some of his businesses continue to buy and sell ships, so it's really hard for us to keep up with his activity. And figuring out all of his holdings related to shipping was extremely complicated. My colleague Maria Curie and I had to go through the painstaking process of unraveling all of his business interests and his shipping interests when it comes to the disclosure form. Okay, so for example, if you go to number 10 on the disclosure form, that's going to be W.L. Ross Group LP. That's the parent company. Now, the problems with these forms are they're extremely opaque. Some of the businesses he has ties to are almost like peering into alphabet soup because they're just a jumble of letters. So if you keep going all the way down to 10.6.1.2.1.1, you'll find WLR... TRF Shipping LP Cayman. So we ended up tracking down some of the businesses and then tied those businesses to a shipping database. Well, that's obviously a lot of time and digging. What was the Senate vetting process that he went through actually like? Did anyone know how large his shipping interests were? Well, they were partly flying blind here, and that's because the Senate held Ross's confirmation hearing just one day after his financial disclosure form was released. Good morning. We are meeting today to consider the nomination of Mr. Wilbur Ross to be the next Secretary of Commerce. It took Marie and me months to figure out just his shipping assets, and the Senate had to process his entire disclosure form, including Wilbur Ross's banking assets, his real estate holdings, energy, and other holdings, in just one day. At his confirmation hearing, Ross was asked how he'd handle conflicts of interest related to shipping and any other interests that he pledged to hold on to. I intend to be quite scrupulous about recusal in any topic where there's the slightest scintilla of doubt. So he said he wouldn't be involved in his businesses and that he would recuse himself from issues that pertain to his business holdings. And I remember Democrats praising Ross at the time for taking that action. And it kind of seemed like they were trying to draw a distinction between Wilbur Ross and his boss, President Trump, who famously did not and has not divested his holdings. Well, that's right. Richard Blumenthal, Connecticut Democrat, who was pointing to Ross as a model of ethics at his hearing, uh, is now blasting Wilbur Ross over the new details uncovered about his shipping holdings. We also uncovered at APM reports that Ross's chief of staff continued to serve as a board member on a shipping company while she was negotiating a trade deal with China. 
All right, let's talk about the Paradise Papers, shall we? Uh, 13.4 million documents have been leaked. Offshore havens and other corporate registries. Paradise Papers revealed Ross's ties to a shipping firm that does business with Vladimir Putin's son-in-law. Critics are calling for an investigation, but the Commerce Secretary says he's done nothing wrong. So there's been a lot of stuff that has come out since the Senate vetting process and the confirmation hearing. Now, Ross is still in his job as Commerce Secretary, and Blumenthal is calling for the Office of the Inspector General to investigate him. And when I interviewed Blumenthal earlier in January, he told me he wasn't given the full financial picture last year, and he's really concerned about that. The reason that my view changed about Secretary Ross was learning additional information, which was somewhat obfuscated when he made his initial filings. And that fact illustrates the lack of power in the current Office of Government Ethics. They lack the resources and authority to audit and do forensic investigation. In today's world, many of these financial holdings are so complex and in- intricate. They are worldwide in scope. They can be disclosed in form, but not in reality. Now, Wilbur Ross said in October that he's going to sell off a lot of his shipping assets. But here's the other problem here. We don't know, fully know if he did that because he hasn't filed the paperwork to do so yet. And we may not know fully until he files his next uh, disclosure form in May. Now, I should note that the Commerce Department, we reached out to them to talk to them about Wilbur Ross's financial disclosure form. They didn't get back to us. The White House also declined our interview requests related to talking about their ethics policy. Which I guess leaves taxpayers still unsure of exactly what the secretary's holdings are. Next week, we are going to take a look at suggestions on how to fix this system and also what happens if there aren't any changes. My colleague Tom Sheck from APM Reports, thank you so much. Thank you. You can read Tom's full investigation, Ethics Be Damned, and listen back to our conversation from last week at Marketplace.org. A couple of years ago, this really important research about student loans came out. It said that people who defaulted on their debt were not the ones with great big balances. They were people who went to for-profit schools or community colleges, and their loans were relatively small, but maybe they were parents or didn't have a financial cushion if an extra bill came in. Well, one of the guys who did that research just found something new. Those big balance people, they're stuck. Not defaulting, but not paying off their debt either. Adam Looney did this work. He is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Welcome. Thank you very much. It seems to me like this big thing has shifted since your last report. Suddenly people with large balances are falling behind. What's going on? Well, it seems like there are a lot more borrowers who have very large balances the balances they owe have increased over time. And the types of people who are taking out these loans is quite different than they were in the past. They're more likely to be parents, to be undergraduates. Uh, They're more likely to have attended for-profit schools. They don't seem to be doing uh, necessarily as well in the labor market after school. It seems like the broad forces that have led to high rates of default among borrowers with small balances uh, are also impacting borrowers with larger balances. Who ends up holding the bag for all of this? I mean, it really seems like it falls on the taxpayers if people, you know, can't pay their loans or can't uh, really stay afloat when they're trying to make their loan payments. 
Well, I mean, the, the, the group holding the bag, first of all, are clearly the students. There's no way to, to discharge a student loan in bankruptcy. And so in, in general, uh, the federal government will continue to collect on the loan until it is repaid. But in many cases, if uh, students uh, don't repay over a long period of time, we have new programs that after 20 years, a student loan can be discharged. Uh, and so if some students don't repay over that long a time horizon, if they're able to fulfill the requirements uh, over that period of time to qualify for a discharge, uh, in those cases, the taxpayer would be holding the bill. Oh, is this dragging on the economy, the amount of debt that people hold and, and just can't seem to get out from under? So I think it's unclear whether it, or to what extent it, it's a drag. Uh, there's a lot of uh, interest in the research community on this topic. Uh, there's a lot of work from the New York Fed that uh, seems to suggest that home ownership rates are depressed when, when borrowers have large loans or more generally a kind of a failure to launch in yeah. the sense of um, moving out of you know, your, your parents' house or becoming financially independent and kind of starting your own family. Uh, and it's not clear empirically how important those are, but if you believe the anecdotes and the concerns of students, it, it really does seem like students today have borrowed much more than they have in the past. The interest and the principal on those loans are eating up a lot of their finances early in life. And it's kind of a new phenomenon uh, in the grand scheme of things. We really don't know what the, the longer-term impact of this increase in, in debt is going to look like. I know that you study this. You're, you're not out there saying we should do X or Y. But, but if you could, you know, if you had the chance to just unilaterally make policy, what would you do? Well, I, I guess one thing I would propose is, is to try to find ways to – to contract the amount of credit that is available to students in very principled ways. Uh, I would encourage uh, strengthening the system of accountability that applies to institutions, for instance, by strengthening the existing rules, the rules about default rates, maintaining rules about uh, gainful employment that were imposed in the last administration, strengthening rules about uh, where institutions get their financing, uh, and how much is eligible to be, to come from federal aid, and strengthening those to look more at the outcomes of students. Uh, we have a lot more information now than we ever had before about how much people earn after college, whether they're able to get a job, uh, whether they finish the program they start, uh, whether they're able to repay their loans over time. And all of those things are really good measures of outcomes that we could use to direct financial aid and steer students to, towards better outcomes. And, and those seem like reasonable approaches to improving the student outcomes and to limiting the impact of excess indebtedness might have on people's lives. Adam Looney from the Brookings Institution, thank you very much. Thank you. So what does it feel like to live with student debt? We reached out to someone paying off loans from her four-year degree at a nonprofit private school. And I'm going to let her introduce herself. My name is Maya Norfleet. I am 28 years old and I live in St. Louis, Missouri. My student loan debt is humongous to me, but I recognize that I'm probably better off than a lot of my peers. I had, when I graduated in 2012, a little over $30,000 in debt. And um, right now I'm about halfway through the process of paying them off. So I got like 15,000 left to go. I graduated with a degree in video production and minors in Spanish and media communications. 
I feel like my degree in my school did prepare me to, you know, pursue a career in order to pay off my debt. It was a little rocky at first because it's kind of hard to get out there into video production, at least primarily in the Midwest. I think I'm there now. <laughs> I'm getting, I feel more confident and comfortable in paying off my debt now. Originally, paying off my debt was a major stress. It's a lot of freelance jobs, a lot of freelance gigs. So one, trying to figure out exactly where I wanted to be as a career overall, and then to factor in paying off this debt. Like, will I be making enough to feed myself, house myself, transport myself, and pay off this loan? So in the beginning, was very difficult. My plan for repayment is what it has been since I graduated, which is making those monthly payments on time so that Sally Mae, which is now Naviant, doesn't get on my case. <laughs> Trying to keep good credit because you can't really get much anywhere without good credit. And if you don't make those payments and when you're supposed to, it really messes you up. So just trying to stay focused and budget properly. Right now, I'm involved in paying off my loans in 10 years, or if I have to prove that I've worked in a nonprofit setting for the last 10 years, then they would be forgiven either one way or the other. Being in debt is a constant, uh, a constant stress. You tell yourself it's okay, but when it's not okay, then it's like terrifying because then you have to make decisions on like which thing gets paid today. Like what, where am I going to be okay, but also be really messed up maybe down the road? Uh, definitely feel like my student loans has hindered kind of any progress and other financial decisions that I could make. I don't see myself owning a house anytime soon. I was in a car accident just after Thanksgiving, which kind of forced my hand on buying a new car or a new to me car. Now all of a sudden I have a car note and Sally and rent and I got to feed myself and I have all the other bills I got to take care of to live as an adult. So it's just kind of staying on top of that and trying not to freak out until I pay off Sally. Hopefully that is in the next five years. <laughs> that was Maya Norfleet. She works in digital communications in St. Louis. If you have a story about student loan debt, we want to hear it. Leave us a comment on Facebook or send us an email. We're weekend at marketplace.org. If you love sports, you are probably glued to the Winter Olympics. I myself am very into skeleton, luge, and really anything that involves hurling yourself downhill. So this week, we bring you a special sporting-themed News by the Numbers with Marketplace producers Sarah Menendez and Tony Wagner. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... 55. That's the percentage of NBC's primetime audience for the 2016 Olympic Games that were women. This stat has grabbed the attention of the International Olympic Committee. They vowed to better represent women at the Games by encouraging more co-ed teams. Anyone for figure skating? 2014. 
That's the year Ralph Lauren started making its Olympic outfits for Team USA in the USA. After the 2012 Summer Olympics, when it came out that American athletes' uniforms were actually made in China. Now, Ralph Lauren sources and manufactures the outfits stateside. Those chunky sweaters are made from wool produced in Oregon. And the athletes are wearing parkas made in New Jersey, jeans made in Texas, and knit hats made in California. One in ten. That's the portion of athletes injured at the last two Winter Olympic Games. Turns out cold weather games are more dangerous than summer sports. The IOC says ski aerials top the list for injuries. Yeah, I think I'm just going to stick with curling. Good idea. Even if you haven't been watching the Olympics, and seriously, come on, you've probably heard a bit about what's been happening on the ice in Pyeongchang. The Russian teenage face-off, the U.S. women's hockey team's gold medal, Canadian Scott Moyer and Tessa Virtue's gold medals, and oh, so romantic, it's viral ice dancing. But in between events, there's another high-pressure job in the rink, and it's the subject of the next chapter in our occasional series, How to Be a Blank. This time, How to Be a Professional Zamboni Driver. My name is Ryan Hevern. I am an ice technician at the Schwann Super Rink in Blaine, Minnesota. I'm at the Lakai Sandpine Resort in Gangwon, South Korea, at the Coastal Cluster for the Olympics. I spent most of my time at the Gangwon Hockey Center, which is Hockey One. You know, it's it's very uh, intimidating driving a giant ice machine around on slippery ice. So you kind of develop a sixth sense to where the machine is because, you know, you're sitting in the back of the machine rather than in the front. Shave, wash, and flood. Those are the three principles for making good ice. So you shave it with the blade. It's kind of like a printer's blade for... Uh, cutting stacks of newspaper. It's very, very sharp. So that shaves the top part of the ice, and then you have wash. So there's these two jets of water that spray down into the ice and kind of mix around on top of the ice, and then it gets retrieved with a pump system. So it pulls all the dirt and grime and the extra snow in the uh, skate cracks. And then you have flood, which is basically a layer of hot water that's applied with a towel, and that's the water you see coming out of the back of the machine. A lot of it's about timing. I'd say it took me about two, three years to get really good at driving. And luckily at the Schwann Super Rink, we do a lot of ice there. We have eight rinks. And there's tournaments going all the time. And you work long hours. You get good pretty quick working there. Good ice, you can't really know exactly what good ice sounds like until you just know what good ice sounds like. I'll say it's like a crisp. You know, you watch someone come in and skate. You see the powder go up into the air. If there's powder floating into the air, you know your ice is cold and it's good. If they're skating around and it kind of sounds like they're stepping on slush, then you you know it's not very good. You kind of just develop an ear and just a feeling for it. And then you talk to the players, you ask them what they thought of it. A lot of it is just it's a slowly developed skill over time. Teamwork is everything. You've got to make sure you're on the same page. When you got two machines on the ice, you both got to be doing relatively the same thing. 
you know, if one person's not shaving and the other person's shaving more, the ice is going to be, you know, it won't be uniform across. And that's what you're looking for, is you're looking for consistency. I actually did not skate or play hockey growing up. I can skate. You probably don't want to see me on skates. But, um, no, uh, it's, it was kind of just a family thing. My dad took care of an arena when I was young, and, you know, he moved over to work at the Schwann Super Rink, and yeah, when I turned 18, that's just kind of how it went. And I haven't looked back, and it's just been the time of my life. And now I'm at the Olympics. He's, he's very proud of me. He taught me how to drive Zamboni on the Rink 6, which is actually the USA Women's National Team home rink. And I actually lost my voice screaming so loud because of the, the gold medal that they won. That was probably one of the best moments of my life was to stand there and watch it actually happen with my own eyes. That was, that was unreal. And to be with uh, a couple of the guys that I work with from Minnesota too and to experience that with them is one of the best moments of my life and I will never forget it. That was Ryan Hevern, who joined us from Pyeongchang to talk Zamboni. That piece was produced by Eliza Mills. Do you have a dream job you want to learn about? Let us know. Get in touch on Facebook or email us. We're weekend at marketplace.org. Last week on the show, we dug into the gender wage gap and what's being done to close it. Professor Catherine Burhide shared her take on what motherhood does to a woman's income. There's something we call the motherhood penalty. And basically, we find that women who are mothers make less money than uh, women who are not, even controlling for their years out of the labor force. In response, Catherine Libiota emailed us saying, I'm curious if the professor found a difference in wage expectations between married mothers and divorced slash single mothers in the same field with the same experience. I know some married mothers who've returned to the workforce and view their income as a supplement to their family, not as a main source. For them, a flex schedule is more of a priority than the money. Yes, they'd love both, but in negotiations would prioritize flex scheduling above income. Do these preferences when negotiating impact wages across the board for all women? We'd love to hear from you about our stories. Just email us. We're weekend at marketplace.org. And you can also call us U.S. has acted as the economic authority in the world. The U.S. doesn't always do the right thing, but on average, it both tries to do the right thing and professes to do the right thing more credibly than anybody else. A world where the enforcer of rules or the setting out of ideal behavior is Europe or China is just simply not going to be as trusted. The U.S. is the biggest country on the block, but it generally hasn't been the bully. It's been saying we should do commerce without bilateral pressure determining how that works. And it's worked out really well. Uh, the world's gotten much richer over the last 50 years, 60 years as a result of that. 
But what happens if one day America isn't the world's economic boss? Is there anyone else who can or wants to fill that void? We are taking a look at the post-America global economy. That's next week on Marketplace with Kai Rizdahl. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Eliza Mills and Peter Balanon-Rosen. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer, and Daniel Powell is our engineer. Naren Rao composed our theme music. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.